Hello and welcome to the In Focus podcast at The Hindu, which brings you the most important news and views from around the world. I'm Narayan Lakshman, Associate Editor at The Hindu and your host for this episode. Although weeks have passed since the 2020 US presidential election, the ferment in politics continues in Washington as outgoing President Donald Trump refuses to concede power and facilitate an orderly, peaceful transition. The broader transition to a new arrangement in the White House will also be impacted by the choice of officials that President-elect Joe Biden picks to serve in his cabinet, as much as it will by the policy paradigm that the new team adopts. To explain the risks and opportunities of this sometimes opaque process, we have as our guest for this episode, Professor Karen Hult of Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, who is also a board member of the White House Transition Project. Welcome, Professor, and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Great. So let's start, uh, kick, it off, kick off the discussion. Um, why are presidential transitions so important? And what are the different dimensions of this process, for example, in terms of budgets, personnel, infrastructure? And what are some of the biggest challenges in each of these dimensions? Well, as one can imagine, a, a presidential transition is always important because as one, one in effect in the U.S. context is moving an entire working executive from its current occupant and that includes people in the White House, the cabinet members, and working in executive branch departments and agencies. Those people are it is entering, transitioning out of power, and a new group is coming in. And that that is difficult to do for logistical reasons, but also policy differences, perhaps, and all of those different things. Now, transitions become more difficult, perhaps not surprisingly, when an incumbent president loses an election as President Trump did in this case, and also when the political parties are turning over, as also happened in this case. So all of them make the formal transition of power fraught. It's very difficult and risks conflict and differences on both sides. Now, having said that, one also imagines that we have done this through U.S. history. And so what that means then is that there have been some norms and some practices, as well as some means. Really, there was no formal transition organization written into U.S. law until 1963. So in before the election starts even in the United States currently, there are many transition processes going on. Actually, the transition to the U.S. presidency starts during every election year. And so, in fact, transition councils are put together um, before the election and go into effect through the spring and into the summer. Once the party nominating conventions come close with nominated candidates, then each of those candidates gets some limited funding and some office space in Washington, D.C. to undertake the beginning of the transition process. But as you note at the outset, the formal transition after the election also has to be declared. That is, a president-elect has to be declared. That's what's taken a lot of time. This time around, it ended on Monday evening when Emily Murphy of the General Services Administration ascertained that President Biden was president-elect. So what? What difference does that make? Well, it turns out in the U.S. context, when a president leaves office, most of the White House staff that supports the president in policy debate, in structuring decision-making, and all of those things also leaves with the president. The president also has about 4,000 appointees throughout the broad executive branch of government. 
that's Department of Defense, Department of the Treasury, Department of State, and so on. So the new president has to be prepared for putting people in places in those positions, as well as figuring out what it is that the current administration has been doing, what programs are in place, what challenges are there for the president-elect to take care of. Now, right now, of course, the U.S. and much of the global economy is having many difficulties. We're thinking that there will be a vaccine rollout, one hopes, sometime in December. President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris need to have a sense of what's going on in preparation for all of those kinds of things. So the mere logistics of that, as well as getting people in place, having them get through necessary background checks and security clearances, all of that has to take place in a fairly limited amount of time, really only 75 days between the formal election and the inauguration on January 20th. So all kinds of things need to take place in the interim. Okay, that's fantastic. You've covered a lot of ground there. Um, can we maybe try and break that down into a few different parts? So the first is obviously that President Trump filed numerous lawsuits challenging the election process itself, especially in the key swing states. Uh, many of those challenges have been knocked down already in the courts. Yet, is there a chance that the allocation of electoral college votes to the two candidates might be different from what we expect? I th there's always a chance, of course. I think much of the difference is probably not very likely. Um, however, in addition, of course, Vice President-elect Biden has currently 306 electoral college votes, so that even if one or two states' electoral college votes remained in question, that, that still would give President-elect Biden the, the formal victory. There are two additional um, dates that we should be looking at going, for, going forward. Certainly, some cases are continuing, but all states must certify their election results to the federal government by December 8th. On December 14th, in the arcane U.S. election system, all of the electors meet in state capitals around the country and cast their votes for presumably in law in most states for the winner of the state's popular vote. By December 14th, then, we should have a fairly good sense of what those electoral college votes are going to be. Then the next day to pay attention to is January 6th. January 6th is when the, the new U.S. Congress, sworn in on January 3rd, meets formally to count those votes. Having, going back to your question, however, I really don't think there's very much chance the electoral college margin will change by very much. Just a footnote of a question there. So in Georgia, the two of the seats have gone into runoff, and I've been, I mean, I understand that the runoff election date is January 5th, but you said that the new House, uh, the new Congress will be sworn in on January 3rd. So how will they decide those seats unless uh, the day it's pushed forward a bit? Well, the new House is sworn in on January 3rd, but the Georgia election takes place on January 5th since the, the Congress meets to count the Electoral College votes on January 6th. The results of the Georgia election should be clear by then, and those new senators will be sworn in and participate in the counting of the votes. Okay, great. So getting back to your point about the General Services Administration, that was a very interesting example, the GSA. Uh, you know, 73 million people did vote for uh, Mr. Trump which is, you know, 10 million almost more than what he got even last time. Um, and so do you think that there could be an issue with institutional resistance to the transition or to change? And, you know, I'm talking about people within working within the federal government. And 
what steps ideally would Mr. Biden have to take uh, and his team uh, to win a more sort of bipartisan basis of support? That's, of course, a concern on many people's minds. Certainly, this was a very close election. It was a contentious election, to be sure. Although when one looks at what appear to be the final vote margins, it appears as though um, President-elect Biden will have won the election by between six and seven million votes and the national popular vote. However, your point is well taken. That is, there is a fair amount of resistance in the broader public. The extent to which that seeps into the U.S. federal government on the executive branch side is a little bit harder to detect. Certainly, Mr. Trump's appointees, his staff in the White House, the appointees throughout the executive branch, this is going to be a very difficult process for them. But the people who actually do the work of the transition and prepare for the transition include those political appointees, but by and large, this is driven by senior career civil servants. Those are folks that do this as part of their professional lives over and over and over again. And so many of them take an oath to the US Constitution as everyone else in US government does, and they take that oath very seriously. What that means then is that in preparing the transition, what they are being prepared to do is the best job they can to give the information available to the Biden team to work toward as smooth a transition as possible. Will there be resistance? Presumably there will be in limited cases. Will there be some slow walking or delaying of some kinds of activities and responses? Presumably there will be. We've had evidence of that in past transitions. By and large though, my guess is this will go on as smoothly as possible. There are always hiccups. There clearly will be in this, in this period as well. I guess my broader concern is less inside government resistance and a little bit more the sense of legitimacy outside of government in Congress as well, among the American public, as well as the questions that this is causing in people's minds, perhaps all over the world. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the point I would hope we can talk about today. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, do you, you know, given all these political forces that were in motion before this election, let's say, you know, what was happening with sus suspected Russian interference in U.S. election, the trade war with China, the U.S.'s rivals in geopolitics, more broadly speaking, are there any circumstances where you know, obstructionism, delays, slow walking, the kind of things you talked about might actually compromise U.S. national security. I think certainly that's that's possible. That, of course, is what Vice President-elect Biden was expressing concern about with the slowness of getting the formal transition process started. It's only yesterday, apparently, that, that Vice President Biden finally had access to the president's daily brief, which is the, the intelligence information that's prepared overnight for the president. Although Vice President-elect Harris some access to some of that intelligence information as a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee, she was forbidden by statute from sharing that with the president-elect. So it's that kind of slowness, that kind of lapse of information being communicated and, and then being communicated in credible ways that could produce some kinds of with national security, with homeland security, and certainly with the logistics of moving forward with the vaccine, addressing the, the pandemic in the United States as well as around the world. There's no doubt all of those issues add the economy and those sorts of things as well. This is a very fraught period. In fact, some have called this transition process in the United States the most perilous period of time in the shift of power. 
Very interesting. Um, so, and speaking of of this, uh, the uh, the risks of this time. Could you also tell us how this transition could potentially impact two of the biggest uh, policy issues, arguably, the U.S. is facing, which is the battle against the COVID nineteen pandemic, and related to that, the U.S. Ec- economic recovery and planning for that. Well, certainly, any time one has a delay, that that can make a big difference. In it looks as though some of the movements that have been taking place very recently, the nomination, for example, of the incoming Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, will help assuage some of those concerns. Certainly, almost immediately when, when the formal transition process began taking place, we're hearing that there have been over 20 meetings set up between the Biden-Harris transition teams, the agency transition teams, meeting with their companies parts in the agencies. That probably bodes well for people getting those initial contacts and trying to make the first moves in in undertaking that kind of relationship. The other thing we probably need to remember is that while all of this is going on in the background, very important, critical to a new administration taking over, it is still the case that President Trump remains president of the United States. That means then that he can and has been taking other decisions on a whole range of things. In past transitions, the outgoing president has tended to meet with the incoming president to discuss those decisions, and in some cases, defer the decisions until the new president is inaugurated. So far, that process hasn't taken place, but one might expect that would happen over the next couple of days. But certainly you're right, in both the national and the global economy and dealing with the pandemic, those are issues that need to be taken care of immediately with attention all along the way. Okay, and uh, this is something you mentioned as well. We talked about the Senate and uh, you know what happens in the elections there, who controls it. Assuming, uh, let's say hypothetically, that the Republicans manage to hold on to the upper house, uh, what role will the transition process have in engaging them as well as critical influencers of the policy agenda alongside the future White House? That's that's obviously very important. Some of that outreach has been going on even before the former post-election transition process started. We have reports that Vice President-elect Biden himself in some cases, but more importantly, members of his team have been reaching out and working with certainly Democrats on both the U.S. House side, the so-called lower house, and on the U.S. Senate side, upper house. But in addition, there have been efforts to reach out to Majority Leader McConnell, who it looks as though most people are predicting will remain in that position after the Georgia elections. So there are efforts underway to open discussions with those people and get at least um, some initial temperature readings on the sorts of nominations the Senate would be likely to confirm on maybe movement before the inauguration in moving forward with a relief package. But those conversations are ongoing. I think as as a short notice, Some of that is helped by the incoming White House Chief of Staff, Ron Klain, who has a long history working in the Senate, as well as in various places around the executive branch. So I think those existing relationships might be among the things that the Biden administration is hoping to to ease those relationships. I think the final thing that's telling about the U.S. Senate is that it looks as though at least the initial cabinet nominations have been poised to be acceptable to at least a good number of Republicans in the U.S. Senate. And that's some of the complaint among the so-called progressives in the Democratic Party is that they view 
many of the nominees as being not quite open enough to more radical changes. But apparently the Biden-Harris administration is making the decision that's fine to think about, but these people have to be confirmed in the U.S. Senate. So I think you're right. What's going on in the Senate, especially if it stays Republican, is always in the back of the minds of the folks in the transition team. Okay, fantastic. And just one last question. Um, this is not so much about transition, but just looking forward. You did mention this sense of acceptability of the Biden you know, administration and their policies that should ideally, you know, manifest in, in the months ahead. And do you, what do you think the Biden team needs to do? Uh, is it going to be business as usual in terms of Democratic Party politics and values? Or do you think they will pivot a little bit towards something else, just keeping in mind how close the election was, as you said? I, I think there'll be, there'll be at least two different streams. I think in terms of the, of the legislative agenda, there'll be, there will be an effort to build at least small majorities in both houses of Congress. And that means moving away from what any so-called views of standard democratic values might be. So I think that's one stream. I think that's, that's very important. I think at the same time that in terms of appointments within the larger executive and actions that the president-elect takes in terms of the executive order and other things presidents can do administratively, there will be an effort to open up and follow more of, the, more of the values that have been put forward by some on the Democratic side. I would expect to see right away that there will be very quick movements to attempt to rejoin the Paris Accord, to at least work about rejoining the Open Skies Agreement, to do a whole variety of things to re-engage other parts of the world. I also think that a very strong signal has been sent by naming um, former Secretary of State John Kerry as the president's special envoy on climate change. That to me is a very important marker, both symbolically about presidential priorities, but probably in terms of first kinds of actions that the United States is being poised to take. Some of that will involve Congress, but not all of it will. Okay, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Karen Holt. Um, thank you for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. And to our uh, listeners, please tune in for more on InFocus podcast on the Hindu's website, www.thehindu.com. Uh, do stay tuned. InFocus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.